0: Welcome to Life at the Academy, a Midshipman-produced podcast that examines how the culture, traditions, and daily life of midshipmen have evolved over time. I'm Midshipman Nels Waranimi.
1: And I'm Midshipman Calvin Tran. One of the purposes of our podcast is to ask alumni how their time in Annapolis
0: shaped them. For today's episode, our theme is to find out what aspects of Academy culture have left an impact on graduates who went on to serve at the highest levels of the Navy and Marine Corps.
1: To do this, we asked Lieutenant General Whistler, the current distinguished chair of leadership at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership to join us.
0: Lieutenant General Whistler is able to offer a unique perspective informed by his experiences as a part of brigade culture and as someone who is now actively shaping it in both his official position and as a mentor to many midshipmen. Calvin, can you introduce our guest? Lieutenant General John
1: Whistler graduated from the United States Naval Academy and was commissioned a 2nd Lieutenant on the 7th of June, 1978. He has commanded at every level from platoon to Marine Corps component, serving most recently as the commander of U.S. Marine Corps Forces Command, as well as the commanding General 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force in Okinawa, Japan. While serving as the commanding general, Lieutenant General Whistler was twice activated as the commander, Joint Task Force 505, conducting humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations in the Philippines in 2013 and during 2015 for earthquake relief in Nepal. He served for 34 months in Iraq during four separate deployments from 2003 to 2010. Unique staff assignments include Commandant of the Marine Corps, Amphibious Plan Study Group for Operation Desert Storm, Marine Corps aide to the President, Director, Commandant of the Marine Corps Strategic Initiatives Group, Senior Military Assistant to the Deputy Secretary of Defense and Deputy Commandant for Programs and Resources. Lieutenant General Whistler is a distinguished graduate of the Amphibious Warfare School, the Air Force Institute of Technology, Marine Corps Command and Staff College, Armed Forces Staff College, and served as a commandant of the Marine Corps and Federal Executive Fellows at the Brookings Institution. Upon retirement from the Marine Corps, Lieutenant General Whistler has served as a consultant in leadership development, team building, strategic planning, and logistics fields, working with industry, the military, professional sports
0: teams, and several colleges. With that, here was our interview with Lieutenant General Whistler. Lieutenant General Whistler, sir, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting
2: me,
1: Nels.
0: Sir, to start out with, culture has been defined as an organizational
1: personality. How would you describe the Naval Academy's organizational personality, in your opinion?
2: Well, I think it's a little bit of a generalization to say some place as large and as diverse as the Naval Academy has a monolithic personality, a culture but if you were to ask me overall what the culture is of this institution, I would tell you that it's a culture of leaders of character building on uh, selfless servant warrior leadership. Uh, An institution that tries to build that idea that what's different about this institution from other institutions of higher learning is that idea that warriors are what graduate from this institution. And what America expects and what this institution has Uh, are a collection of selfless servant warrior leaders, men and women of character, who can make a difference
0: in the lives of others. Sir, one of the things that we discuss about culture in some of our leadership courses is the tension that sometimes exists between the formal culture of an organization and the informal culture. I think at the academy, that would be the values of the institution as opposed to some of the practices among the midshipmen. Did you notice any tension in that regard during your time as a midshipman or, or your time now? I think there's always
2: going to be a tension between the brigade and what those who have already left this institution and served in uniform or those who continue to serve here as staff, faculty or coaches. And the reason for that is the midshipmen haven't been fully uh, inculcated with that idea of what the culture means. Going back to the previous idea of selfless servant warrior leaders. I would offer that those two cultures are closer than you think. Uh, But as a midshipman, uh, there's still a little bit of rebellion there, there's still a little bit of pushback against the institution, Um, but that's sort of a natural uh, pushback. That's people learning, people feeling out boundaries, people trying to understand the why of what the institution wants them to do. But I would offer if you step back and look at the totality of what the brigade does across the period of a year, you'll see a lot of that selfless servant leadership, people who are making a difference in their extracurricular activities, people who are making a difference outside the yard in different organizations that they're uh, a part of, that they're volunteering for, in the lives of kids around Annapolis or other kids through STEM education. So while they may seem different on the surface. Uh, you know. Certainly if you go to Yodel, you would think that there's a lot of difference there, right? But in actuality, I think the negativity that's displayed is really just people trying to push the boundaries, understand the why, truly trying to figure out are they and where do they fit in that culture? And then how do they mold their personalities to support that culture in the long run?
1: Sir, the Naval Academy, like the military as a whole, is a transformative institution. What specific ways did the Naval Academy transform or develop you as an individual while you were here? Yeah, I may have had an
2: unfair advantage if there is such a thing. My dad was a World War II Korea-Vietnam veteran, a retired sergeant major of Marines. Uh, jokingly, I used to tell people I was 12 years old before I knew I had a dad, not a squad leader. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, we field day the house, uh, every Saturday. So, but I think what it, it really brought to me was that idea of the transformation happened for me, plebe summer. Uh, I remember falling out for a formation, crisp looking uniform, cover squared away, shoes as shiny as I could get them. You know, the, the sort of the standard was two fingers separated at your waist, be able to see your fingers in the, in the tips of your shoes and i looked great and a classmate of mine showed up next to me i won't say his name he's a tremendous guy tremendous friend to this day and he looked like a soup sandwich in a plastic wrapper i mean he was he was all over the place and our squad leader came up and began to just give me the butt chewing of my life and the the central piece of the butt chewing was you know whistler you spent all that time making sure you were perfect and you couldn't spend some time with your classmate making sure that he was pass- passable for this formation. And that was the transformation for me. That was the idea that it wasn't about me. It was about the we. It was about the team. It was about the institution. And although I played sports and I believed that in sports, I sort of didn't understand that about that, you know, as you say, the culture of the Naval Academy was about, we all succeed when everybody succeeds. You know, we're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain, right? And that squad leader's dressing down really drove that home for me. That was the transformative moment for me that made me believe that it wasn't just about me meeting the standard, but it was about how I could help others meet the standard, how
0: I could help them be the best versions of themselves. Sir, we'd like to turn to a question now that's really the theme of this episode, which is we've heard your thoughts on the culture of the Academy and how that transformed you. How did that culture and that transformation have an impact on your leadership as a a Marine officer? I
2: think that taking that last, you know, discussion we had about it's not about you, it never is about you. If you're a leader, it's about the people you lead. And so leaving this institution, understanding that it wasn't about me, it wasn't about 2nd Lieutenant Whistler being a success. It was about the people that 2nd Lieutenant Whistler was leading be a success. How were they going to, to really achieve their goals? How was I going to be able to help them achieve their goals? How was I going to truly show that I loved the people that I led? Not loving them, if you will, in the sense of you know an emotion but love in a sense of action what was i willing to sacrifice for them so that they would be able to to really succeed to give them the challenges to give them the tools to give them the opportunities and that all started here at the naval academy so when i arrived at my and took charge of my first platoon of marines and you have to understand they were they were not the sailors and marines that you will go out and take command of someday right i had three convicted felons in my first platoon these were some some people who had been on hard times but two of those three marines ended up being hugely successful or tremendously successful businessmen today one of them is doing a you know a life sentence in the new hampshire state penitentiary for being a drug dealer so there was a reason he was a convicted felon but those bonds i created here that idea of leading and and, and making it about them and not about me just translated straight to my experience in the fleet marine force and it also translated to understanding that, you know, sometimes everybody's not going to succeed, and your greatest efforts are not, you know, they're going to have to want it more than you want it. But you can at least give them your 100% effort to make sure that they can succeed.
0: Sir, I remember hearing a speech of yours, plebe year, where you talked about as a commanding officer in in combat, you communicated to your Marines that any um, casualty that was a non-combatant was something that would have a negative impact on the overall mission. So I'm wondering if that service mindset, focusing on others that you developed here at the Naval Academy, impacted that uh, value that you tried to instill in your troops in combat?
2: Yeah, I think that as you, you know, we had to relearn some hard-learned lessons, right? As the Marine Corps came out of Vietnam, we were very good at counterinsurgency. We had begun the very, and I say we, the Marine Corps, had begun the very uh rudiments of combined action platoons where you know individual marines squads would go live um in and amongst uh, vietnamese villagers and they would build this idea of you know what back then was called winning hearts and minds and and what when we studied in depth what it meant to be successful in counterinsurgency we learned that we had to adapt to the cultures that we were living inside and understanding the culture that we lived in uh in iraq and that's where i spent my combat time i tell people I, I served 34 months in combat in iraq and then i was a combat tourist in afghanistan i just <laughs> went and visited people there but when you understand that culture um the idea of blood debt is uh, is alive it's strong inside the arabic culture and so my comment in that class was if you killed the wrong iraqi you created a hundred new enemy mm-hmm. right and, and so that did come from this idea at the Naval Academy where you had to understand the enemy that you were fighting. In my day, you know, as a brand new minted second lieutenant, uh, we were fighting the Soviet Union. And based on the way they fought, it was actually very simple. You saw this element of that, and it was the forward element of one of these, and you knew exactly what you were gonna face, and it was very straightforward. Uh, we never really faced that kind of an enemy again after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Perhaps the Iraqi army in the first Gulf War, 1990-91, fought a little bit that way. Uh, Saddam Hussein's military fought a little bit that way at the outbreak of Operation Iraqi Freedom one in 2003, in terms of conventional force but it was the unconventional force fight that we had to get our heads wrapped around. And when we did, we understood that fundamental to that, to that force was the Iraqi people. And therefore, we had to be very careful about how we prosecuted combat operations in that counterinsurgency environment. And all that was led by General Mattis, by his uh, demand that we understand who our enemy was, that we studied those elements of counterinsurgency, and that we were very restrictive uh, when it came to who, in fact, became the object of our own, uh, our own lethal fires.
1: Sir, as a follow-up question to that, um, seeing that America's adversaries are constantly ever-changing and we're facing new adversaries. As midshipmen at the Naval Academy, we're trying to become future Marine Corps and Naval officers. What can we do as midshipmen right now to gain that cultural awareness that you speak of in terms of when we talk about the Iraq conflict or other conflicts such as that? What can we as midshipmen do to prepare ourselves for those type of situations where we're ready to be educated and understand the situation? Yeah. Read,
2: read, and read some more. I would be reading everything I could get my hands on right now about the Chinese. Uh, And there's some actually some great books about, uh, you know, about Chinese culture more than the way the Chinese fight, right? About how the Chinese think about the long game, right? Some great fictions that are written about Chinese culture but still give you really good insights. You know, they're well-written historical fictions, if you will. And then I wouldn't just exclusively focus on those on those. I would I would study uh coalition warfare what it takes you know to fight as a successful coalition i would read a lot about technology i'm not very smart about technology i'll you know i'll admit that but i've learned a lot about technology because i think that's your future right your future unlike mine which was understand organizations and orders of battle you know certainly you're going to have to do that but you're going to have to be able to adaptively take current technologies and through your innovative mindset, you're going to have to be able to turn them into a successful way to engage an enemy that, as you say, is ever changing. If you look at uh, General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, you know Force 2030. Uh, General Berger has done a tremendous job of not trying to fight the last fight, but being able to prepare to fight the future fight, and it's it's required a fundamental rethink of what the Marine Corps looks like. Now, that's a, that's a pretty significant challenge, right? Because all institutions are resistive to change. Uh, and yet he has drove significant change by, uh, by forcing people to do, you know, what. think about those technologies. Think about how they will be used differently. Article in today's uh, paper about the CNO and the, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps Uh, at a conference talking about we're going to have to train differently. We're going to have to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to train a thinking enemy that we can practice against so that that enemy will more adequately reflect the enemy than the way we think the enemy will fight, right? And then we have to be able to do that training in a... In a live virtual constructive environment so that the enemy can observe our training and understand how we will react to the way that they want to present themselves on the battlefield right something totally different than the way i was raised during my marine corps career where it was pretty straightforward you went out to big open areas you sort of hoped you knew what the enemy was going to do but it didn't really matter because you were going to take all of the you know all the weapon systems at your disposal and you were going to learn how to apply those weapon systems in the most effective manner and and that's how you trained and that's how you rehearsed and that's you know, what you went to war with, right? And so it's that idea of understanding technology, understanding the cultures against which they're gonna be applied and, and how you can be innovative as a leader on the combat field uh,
0: in a combat environment. Mm-hmm. Sir, turning back to your time as a midshipman, there are many different ways that midshipmen contribute to the culture of the Naval Academy individually, ranging from a spectrum where some are more resistant to buying into the culture and others are, are completely bought in. Where did you fall on that spectrum as a midshipman? All over the map. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I
2: say that for this reason. Uh, you know, I, I ended up being uh, on the brigade staff my, my first class year. But if you were to look at my, my uh, lucky bag photo, you would not realize that there might've been a hair standard in, in, the, in the Marine Corps, right? And yet I would offer, I had shorter hair than most of my classmates. Mm-hmm but that doesn't matter, right? So, you know, in that aspect, we were all sort of pushing the edge on hair standards as an example. Now, my uniform, I took great pride in that, right? So I'd have a great looking uniform with great looking shoes. My cover was always immaculate, but my hair was, yeah, you know, kind of close. I also was a rugby player. Uh, The thing I love About rugby is that you could be absolutely in fierce competition on the pitch, and then at the end of the match, you were enjoying the other players' company and you know down on a few cold beverages and once again, sort of pushing that edge on. uh, You know, I never had an alcohol-related incident, but I'm sure that I was pretty close to that edge uh, at at a couple of at a couple of opportunities. And I share that with you because I, I think nobody is on one side of that or on the other the one thing I would tell you is I think I was always that midshipman who tried to hold myself and others accountable that caused some friction at some points but I think at the end of the day people understood that I was really trying to make sure that we were better whether it was in the company level whether it was us as a rugby team whether you know, whatever the organization was, and it wasn't just me. And that's that's one of those skill sets that is I think set me up well for success in the operating forces, right? Mm-hmm. Because as long as you're holding people accountable for the right reasons, they understand that you're not just doing it to make yourself look good, but rather it's to to foster a level of professionalism and accountability in the organization and that that makes them more professional and better at what they do. Um, I think that, that goes a long way. Now, once again, n- not perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why I said at the beginning, all over the map. Mm-hmm. Some, some areas I was probably stronger on, some you know, not, not so much.
0: Sir, could we drill down on that friction that you talk about? Because that is one of the difficulties, I think, for a lot of midshipmen is, on the one hand, there are standards here that need to be upheld, but then actually upholding them in practice is a, is a challenge. Could you talk about how you overcame that challenge?
2: Yeah. What I found out early on was that very few people wake up deciding that they're going to be, you know, a turd that day, right? That they're just, I'm not going to follow any rules. I'm just going to be. So usually there's something behind that. Usually there's a reason that somebody you know, to use that phrase again, looks like a soup sandwich in a plastic wrapper, right? Their cover's all messed up. Their uniform looks like they slept in it. Their shoes and their, you know, their boot brush haven't met in who knows how long. So you can start that conversation rather than, you know, you're all jacked up and, you know, come around or, you know, whatever. If you ask that, that question of, hey, what's going on? You know, I know you're not normally in this kind of, you know, condition. So what's going on in your personal life that's causing you to be this way? And you'd be amazed, I mean, the initial answer is, hey man, get out of my business, there's nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you can persist with that, right, if you can just stay on that a little bit, you usually find out there is something going on with that, interview. you know, and, and it may be valid, you know, I got, I got grades, I got things going on at, you know, I, I get a kick out of people and say, I don't have any time. Well, guess what, this whole place is, a, that's the idea. <laughs> I mean, they don't want you to have enough time, right? The, the The whole presumption is if we can teach you how to properly prioritize what you're gonna do, you'll be able to do things and you'll be able to do them more effectively. You'll be able to get the tasks done that you need to do. So when somebody comes up to me and says, well, my problem is I just don't have time. Well, my answer is, yeah, none of us have time, but what's that other thing, right? What else? That's always the good, but what else? well, uh, what what else? And then they will come to that idea that, okay, the snow has not gone away, so I, I do need to, and then, and then you can say, hey, you know, what's your room number? I'm going to come check on you, not give me your ID card, I'm going to turn you over to your company commander or whatever, and then you go, and sure enough, there's usually something there, and if not, you show up, and they found a cleaner cover, and their shoes magically got shined, and Right, because they sort of want to prove to you that you were right, that they're not as gooned up as perhaps they looked. So, I, just attacking it from, you know, less of an in-your-face and more of once again, it's not about you, it's about them, right? And there's all you know. You can always you know, hey, are, do you really want the entire class of 23 to be painted with the brush that you're presenting right now? Because that's what when I'm looking at you, I'm looking at the class of 23 right a lot of people don't think about that right they don't think about how they represent their class or how they represent their company or how they represent their squad or their platoon or fill in the blank their team so there's usually something hidden there and if you can approach it from that more personal standpoint instead once again not not about you uh, but about them then i've found that you get results now did i figure that out right away no i mean you know the first thing was hey What's going on? You're all screwed up, you know, and then magically you got no results out of that, right? But I had a few mentors who sort of gave me, you know, a couple of upperclassmen who sort of used those techniques. Then I saw them work, and I was like, hey, I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight, but it, it does work. And, and then the other thing you can do is you take care of the individual, but then what happens? There were three other upperclassmen who walked right past that guy or gal, and you go to them and say, hey, didn't you see midshipman Whistler back there? The one that looked like, you know, he had just been rolling in the grass all day long. Why did you walk past him? So you start building that idea, going back to your culture, build that culture of accountability, right? Because at the end of the day, this place is a culture of accountability accountability of those standards I talked about, about selfless servant leadership and about men and women of character who can make a difference. When you walk past somebody, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. You probably remember me saying that. Yes, sir, I do. So, but that's how you stop that. You go, you go to those people who walk past the standard and you hold them accountable. And then all of a sudden, you're not the, you know, you're not the single firefighter in the forest fire, right? Now you got a whole bunch of people who are holding people accountable. And it starts with holding yourself
1: accountable. Sir, we would like to transition our conversation to talk about your time at the Stockdale Center. During your time as a midshipman, were there formal courses in ethics and leadership that were part of the curriculum today? And how do you you think these courses impact the professional development of midshipmen as a whole?
2: There were some courses in leadership. There was no Stockdale Center when I was here. Uh, Stockdale Center, Came to life in 1992. It wasn't originally called the Stockdale Center. It was called the Center for Ethics. Then it transitioned to the Center for Ethical Leadership, and then became the Center, the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. And it came out of 1992 electrical engineering scandal, huge cheating scandal. Alumni said, "This can't be my Naval Academy. We've got to do something about this." So they put together the Stockdale, what's now the Stockdale Center. We had leadership courses. They were nowhere near as structured as your curriculum is today. And I would offer, for that reason, they were probably not as effective. We had a course I remember as a plebe called the human officer uh, or the human professional officer and the human person. It was literally about uh it was sort of race relations 101 you know 1974 Admiral Zumwalt was trying to get you know we had significant racial issues across the country certainly rampant in the Navy um and that was a course intended to get people to come together and sort of understand different racial backgrounds and and so as they would go out into the fleet they would be prepared to take on those challenges uh, but there was no NL 110 class, right? Uh, certainly nothing that, that, that provides that basic, who are you as a leader, how do you, you know, all of the things. There was no NE203. There was a 300-series leadership course. There was a, an elective in uh, military psychology, which I found to be interesting because it was pretty much Psych 101 with a little bit of military stuff slung around the sides of it. And then you had the NL 400 classes. And they were, they were really more the practicums that you have now. If you were a Marine, you had NL 400 with a Marine and, and you studied sort of Marine Corps history. And since you were a Naval Academy graduate, how to wear Marine Corps uniforms and how to clean a weapon and, you know. And if you were a aviator, it was aviation focused. And if you were a surface warfare guy, it was. So different focus certainly today. I think the leadership training and education came more from the company officers, from the opportunities to command, from being on the plea, de- you know, the things that you still have as opportunities, but it was really more of midshipmen teaching midshipmen and company officers teaching midshipmen. We had no uh, senior enlisted leaders in those days, which is a tragedy. Um, I think the senior enlisted leaders are a tremendous addition because they provide uh, a lens for you now to look at what are those senior enlisted, what are they looking for? And they're young leaders that are hitting the fleet, right? And if you haven't talked to every senior enlisted leader that's available, then you've obviously missed an opportunity, right? Because you really want to get as many of those perspectives as you can get. Um, and the same thing with company officers. Engaging company officers, not just your company officer, but as many as you can, and the same thing with professors, right? Especially professors that wear a uniform, but some professors who maybe wore a uniform and don't wear that uniform today, right? Get their perspectives on, on leadership, because the more you can expose yourself to, to leadership, the more you're going to be able to to sort of take that and absorb that and transition that into
0: positive techniques on how you will be effective as a leader sir this is backpedaling just a little bit but you mentioned mentorship and I know that you place a high value on mentorship is that something that you learned at the Naval Academy I probably didn't know
2: it was mentorship at the time but yes a couple of company officers an officer rep on uh, on the rugby team sort of took me under their wing probably trying to keep me out of trouble But at the time, I didn't realize that that was part of the mentor issue, uh, you know, or or, or the gambit of activities that went along with being a mentor, right? But at the same time, I had a couple of upperclassmen who really, I guess, saw something in me and also saw that there was a little bit of a rough edge that maybe needed to be, you know, taken off. And so over the course of time, they, they invested their time to make sure. Uh, I understood, at least from their perspective, you know, how I could improve myself. And then there were some, some officers who were uh, not in my chain of command, but made a, made a significant difference just because they, they decided to invest the time to make sure, you know, in my cases, I wanted to become a Marine, that I would, in fact have at least a, a basic set of skills and understanding that I could go out and be a success. Sir,
1: could you name someone specifically during your time at the, at the academy that was, had a profound effect on you as, as your mentor, and what did they do to have such a positive impact on your time as a midshipman and your military career?
2: Yeah, um, one not a mentor, one a professor, a professor by the name of Rankin. He taught uh, marine propulsion. What we didn't realize until you know maybe halfway into the semester is he'd been a World War II submariner officer. And every once in a while we'd we'd get him off topic, and he'd he'd share these just amazing stories about what it meant to be a submariner, and you know old diesel subs, World War II, going after the Chinese, Chinese or the Japanese, Japanese coming after you I mean, you know just literally the hair on the back of your neck would stand up. And you realize that this guy was a no-kidding hero, right? I mean, he was a no-kidding, bona fide warrior. And oh, by the way, he was giving back, right, by being an instructor at the Naval Academy. So I think that was one of the first guys that I sort of realized, man, this institution is about being a warfighter, whether you're a professor or whether you're, you know, a company officer, whatever you're doing, hmm. coach, you know, officer rep, whatever. Um, And then uh, there were two Marine cap, well, three Marine captains that that were that had a profound impact on me. Uh, The first was a guy named Walt Wood, then captain, now retired Marine Colonel Walt Wood, uh, led uh, Bravo Company, his company, uh, in the capture of the USS Mayaguez in 1975. And he showed up at the Naval Academy literally months after that that event. I think the, the recapture of the has happened in May and in, 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 in the fall of 75 he shows up so I'm a youngster and he takes us all over into Chauvenet and gives this presentation on how that thing went down and I thought wow here's a guy who literally just came out of combat and now he's here as an instructor right um, and then my company officer with two tours in Vietnam a marine one of my company officers and just seemed like the most down-to-earth, you know, guy. But he was a no-holds-barred, you know, you met the standard or you didn't kind of guy. But not, in a, not as a jerk, right? I mean, he just, you knew what the standards were. He expected you to meet them. And, and it was really more about disappointing him than it was, you know, okay, I'm going to follow these because I'm going to get fried or something else. Um, and then the final uh, two guys worked in candidate guidance. Uh, Kevin Kennedy, two Marine captains who I ended up seeing later on in my career, they were captains when I was a brand new lieutenant. And two guys that just really laid out for me what it meant to be that selfless servant warrior leader, what it took to lead Marines, how you, you know, what that idea of loving the people you lead meant, Mm -hmm. right? About upholding standards, but doing it in a way that mattered, that people wanted to follow, you know, sort of on my, my company officer's model of you just didn't want to disappoint these two guys. So, and, and I would take that all the way back to Professor Rankin, you know. I probably studied harder in that class, not because it just I didn't want to disappoint the guy. I mean, he had, he had done such a tremendous job of inspiring us about what it meant to be a naval officer. And, you know, there was no way I was going into subs, but it, just his professionalism as a leader was one of those things that, that really inspired me as a midshipman.
0: Sir, back to the Stockdale Center today, what contributions do you think the Stockdale Center makes to the culture of the Naval Academy, and particularly with the example of James Stockdale overriding the, uh, the Stockdale Center?
2: Yeah, I mean, there isn't a day I go into work that I don't pass that huge mural, and if you haven't seen the huge mural, it's, it's in between the first and second deck and, and loose as you're going up in the, in the mid-store parking lot end. But you know, you look at that 2,714 days in captivity. You know, Medal of Honor recipient for his actions, just being willing to disfigure himself so as not to be able to be used as a, uh, you know, as a propaganda tool to be able to communicate to the rest of the, you know, understanding that he had a leadership responsibility, right? So first of all, just you go in there every day and you're just inspired by that, right? So you say to yourself, hey, I have an opportunity, mm-hmm. so. I'm gonna to touch as many midshipmen as I can touch, right? Uh, I'm I'm gonna make this worthwhile. I'm making it worthwhile for them, but I'm also making it worthwhile for me, right? And by that I mean I'm gonna be able to translate maybe a little bit simpler than what you get in a NL110, and an NE203, and an NL310, and then you know in your practicum and in the in the you know for the first class midshipmen will in the spring we will do. A, uh, capstone character development seminar right and then they'll have practicum they'll have their NL 400 you know their their uh, uh, law for the junior officer class but it allows me an opportunity to sort of reach reach out and touch them and that's I say me but I'm just one representative of everybody in the Stockdale Center um, everybody there is trying to make realistic for the midshipmen this idea of being men and women of character and that's what the stockdale center does you know my classmate michael sears who 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 does our podcasts just a way to reach out to the brigade right and a medium they can appreciate when they want it however they want it he's also worked on uh, and i don't know if you've seen uh, any of them but he's worked on these sort of uh decision comic book kind of uh character comic books i don't know that we've released actually any of them. we've worked on a number of them Uh, and they'll be coming out and you'll be able to sort of you know go through make some decisions see the outcome of that decision rewind the rewind the tape a little bit do it again make a different decision and he's got a whole host of those that he's so we're trying to you know what does leadership look like in the 21st century Mm -hmm. right so that's what the stockdale center is trying to do you know um admiral stockdale as he was you know parachuting into Vietnam, you know, said to himself, I'm now le- leaving, you know, the land of technology and I'm entering the land of Epictetus, right? That's sort of what we try and do, right? Except we're trying to figure out what are those tools? How do we bring that idea of stoicism and how do we bring that idea of, of having men and women of character who are ethical leaders? What, what does that mean and how do we translate that? That's the real power, I think, of the Stockdale Center, and being able to do it outside of the curriculum. My presentations to NL110, while sort of baked into the curriculum, I don't really have, as you know, because you sat through them, you probably bored to tears, but, <laughs> but, but I don't have to stick to a script, mm-hmm. right? I don't have to, I try to tie it back to the curriculum so that you understand those linkages, but what I'm really trying to communicate is, this is your first opportunity to build that toolkit that tool bag as i say of things that will stand you in good stead when you hit the fleet or the fleet marine force that will make you that man or woman of character who makes a difference in people's lives and everybody in the stockdale center has that opportunity and you know and from those i get invited to go to company mess nights or i get invited to go speak to a company here i get invited to go you know even during COVID times i was doing you know virtual outreaches to squads and squad leaders and platoons. And um, so that's what the Stockdale Center allows us is a flexibility to do that and to communicate that, that
0: ideal for which the Stockdale Center was founded, which was to make men and women of character. Well, sir, I think the fact that I remember several of the things you said in that NL 110 <laughs> speech you gave us indicates that I wasn't bored to tears. So. Okay. <laughs> but um, is there any particular lesson that you learned from an experience in the Marine Corps? that you would like to pass on now to Midshipman as distinguished chair of leadership for the Stockdale Center?
2: Yeah, there's a couple of them. Um, The first one is, I didn't take on all the opportunities that this institution offered early enough to really really make value of them. This is, you've heard it said before, but I would say this is the best leadership laboratory in the world. So I would tell people, throw your hat in the ring for every leadership opportunity you can. Why? Because leadership's leadership. Yeah, it's going to be different when you head out to the fleet or the fleet Marine Force. Yeah, anybody who doesn't believe that is, is crazy. I would offer, though, in some instances it's harder here at the Naval Academy. As I've said on numerous occasions, peer leadership is the toughest form of leadership. I mean, without a doubt, hands down, bar none. So if you can be a successful leader as a peer leader, you can do it in, in just about anywhere. So I would say take every opportunity, right? Take every opportunity to be a leader here. Um, be a lifelong learner. Be a lifelong learner in the things that matter. And certainly leadership is one of those things that matter. Uh, great advice I got early on was to pick a leader or two over time and then read everything you can about them. I've tried to do that. Uh, And then pick one battle and read everything you can from the tactical to the strategic. And it doesn't really matter what the battle is. Something hopefully you're interested in so that you can continue to feed that. And what you'll find in that is not only the ideals of being a successful Naval officer, but you'll see leadership perspectives, you'll see successes, you'll see failures, you'll see all kinds of different things there. So that idea of taking the opportunities here, starting the idea of being a lifelong learner and and then love the people that you lead. It sounds weird, I know, but it really is the thing that makes a difference. And yeah, in great great units, I would say that ideal that starts as love as an action can actually become love as an emotion. You become very, very attached to the people you lead. They become attached to you. And, and not in a negative way, you know, not, not in, a, in, a, in a way that, that is inappropriate, but in a way that there is such self-respect, you respecting them and their capabilities, they respecting you and your capabilities and openness, you know, that goes beyond that idea of action and, and, and gets into a, a little bit of emotion. So I think those would be the things that, that I, I took out of that. And then, I guess finally, um, realizing you're not the smartest person in the room. You're going to have some young sailors and Marines that work for you, they are going to know a heck of a lot more about the technical aspects of what you're doing. And be humble. Be humble enough to ask the questions. You know, the C.S. Lewis definition of humility, right? Don't think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. Mm -hmm. Be willing to ask those questions. Ask the questions of your senior enlisted leaders who technically you outrank, but probably know a heck of a lot more about what's going on. And that's why I said this idea of senior enlisted leaders at the academy is tremendous. You can learn boatloads from them about leadership, right? And you can take their experiences and lay them against the leadership curriculum, and you'll find that it just adds a whole level of of spice and flavor to what you've learned that makes a difference.
1: Sir, we would like to wrap up this episode in discussing about how you think the Academy's culture has evolved over time. The Naval Academy culture has its roots in 19th century. Is the culture of the brigade becoming outdated or is it more relevant than ever? Is the Academy's culture still capable of preparing officers for 21st century conflicts?
2: Yeah, that's always the question, right? I mean, everybody's like, I had the last real plebe year," you know, um, everything was harder when I was here. You know, all those kinds of things would lend, make you tend to think that there's been some erosion of the culture over time. My experience of that is that's a bunch of bull hockey. I said that, you know, you, for your generation, being innovative, understanding technology, being willing to apply that technology, right? You can walk right over to Michelson and Chauvenet, right, and see where somebody measured the speed of light, right? Think about how earth shattering that was in his day and time, right? How absolutely mind boggling that had to be to, to other people at the Naval Academy. So to think that somehow we've lost what was valued then in what we value now is unthinkable. You look back to the, you know, to the great young men and women that came out of this institution since the advent of women coming to the Naval Academy and what they were able to achieve and the obstacles they were able to overcome and the success. I mean, the heroic success of graduates of this institution on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan as you know, in various cultures, SEALs, Marines, aviators, fill in the blank, right? EOD technicians, you know, all of those successes would lend you, would just countermand anything to say that this culture is no longer viable it doesn't produce those selfless servant warrior leaders who fundamentally can make a difference in the lives of the people that they lead I mean that's it just it can't be said right it can't be said so I would say that have the have the techniques of instruction changed I touched on early certainly they have 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 the uh, has the environment in which they're intended to be employed changed certainly um, you know a great lesson I learned from from uh, from General Mattis uh, you know he was a he was the one who literally introduced me to professional reading when I was when I was a young lieutenant after the first operation Iraqi freedom so in 2003 I had an opportunity to talk to him and you know and I said hey sir you know sort of what surprised you and in, in the in, in the march you know to baghdad and he said nothing i'd read about it all before Mm -hmm. right weapon systems change ranks you know organizations all that stuff changes but the fundamentals of being a leader in combat don't change the fundamentals of preparing yourself preparing your people of understanding you know how to be that leader that has success on the those things haven't changed and this institution, I would offer, continues to prepare people to succeed in that most difficult environment, which is the environment for combat. And you can see it just by recent graduates and their performance on the battlefield. And whether that battlefield is so far under the ocean that nobody knows what's going on, or whether it's on an aircraft carrier, or whether it's uh, you know, boots on the ground in some really dirty, dusty place, they have continued to succeed. And so you can't tell me that this institution has, that this culture is beyond its usefulness. Because to me, that's the ultimate test. The ultimate test is do you succeed fighting the nation's battles when and where you're called upon to do them, regardless of how prepared you thought you were, do you meet the standard in the time of need? And I would offer that the Naval Academy and Naval Academy graduates have continued to meet that standard and meet that need.
0: Sir, you've touched on this somewhat already, but I I still think this is a question worth asking, which is why do you think the Naval Academy continues to graduate the quality of officers that it does? First of all, it starts with who
2: they bring here. You know, if you look at the statistics, uh, what is it, less than 70 percent of American youth age 18 to 24 are even qualified to join the military. That's just, you know, to go to boot camp of any sort. Then out of that population, take people who have the, the mental acuity, the background, the moral background, the commitment of service, all the things that it takes when you look at a package for some young woman or man who wants to come to this institution, that raises that bar even higher. So now you've even skinnied that thing down. Then you put them through the pressures of being a midshipman, of all the things that you have to do while you're here academically, physically, if you're an athlete, you had a whole nother, if you're a striper, if you're doing, you know, leadership, whatever it is, now you're starting to just ratchet all those things up. So by the time somebody gets to the four-year graduation point, they've pretty much been put through a ringer, right? And then you take them and you send them out to initial training, you put them out under great leadership that exists in the fleet or the fleet marine force, in the old phrase you know steel sharpens steel so the best of those leaders come back here to make sure that the leaders this institution graduates go back out there as good leaders are they all great leaders no every institution has some people that you know but when you look at the totality of what walks across the stage every may you know whether that stage is a small stage in t court the last you know or whether it's the big stage, you know, in Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. Yeah, I think this institution has shown that it produces quality young men and women of character. You think about what happened at other institutions around the world during COVID, and then you look at what happened at this institution and how this institution was able to be innovative and was adaptable and flexible, and not just on the institution side, but on the midshipman side. That's a pretty high testament to the quality of
0: what this institution produces. Well, Lieutenant General Whistler, sir, you've been very generous with your time and we thank you very much for answering our questions and for sharing your perspective with us.
2: The only thing that won't change is go Navy, beat Army.
0: <laughs> yes, sir.
1: This concludes our interview with Lieutenant General Whistler about how the culture of the Academy impacted his leadership as an officer in the Marine Corps, we want to thank Lieutenant General Whistler for spending his time with us and sharing his perspective and experience.
0: This has been the Midshipman Produced podcast, Life at the Academy, recording from the Naval Academy's Sampson Hall in Annapolis, Maryland. On behalf of the USNA History Department and our Midshipman hosts and producers, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time.